Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm your host, Nick Cheesman, a member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. Today I'm talking with Jade Lynn Roberts, a lecturer in Asian Languages and Studies at the University of Tasmania, about. Hello, this is New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm your host, Nick Cheesman, a member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. Today I'm talking with Jade Lynn Roberts, a lecturer in Asian Languages and Studies at the University of Tasmania, about mapping Chinese Rangoon, place and nation among the Sino-Burmese, published in 2016 by the University of Washington Press. Jade, it's great to have you join us appropriately from Rangoon or Yangon. Thank you very much. Happy to join you. Jade, what attracted you to research the Sino-Burmese community in Yangon during the 2000s at a time that Myanmar was still under military dictatorship and any sort of ethnographic work would have been difficult? Well, I I came to this not as some sort of grand project. I came to Yangon or Rangoon, and both names are appropriate because um, if you look at it linguistically, in the past, when the, in the early colonial era, it was still a ra sound. So this is after I talked to linguists, and also the I feel like using the the name Rangoon in the book is appropriate because I spent a significant amount of time looking at. The history. But today people tend to say Yangon, so I tend to say Yangon. So I came to Yangon in the early 2000s as a Vipassana meditator, actually, and I wanted to come back. So at that time I was doing a master's degree and I was trying to figure out what does it mean to be Chinese in America or Taiwanese. I'm Taiwanese American. And luckily, I had amazing faculty members at the University of Washington. I talked with Mary Callahan. She loved the idea. So I began to look at how I could come back to Yangon and do research and move from what I was doing in my master's into the PhD. Um, And also because I have a background in architecture and looking at spaces and places, I thought that might be a good way to bring things together. So... It was luck, I think, or something that brought me here. Well, you'd spent a bit of time there meditating, but uh, still getting access uh, to do the kind of research that you wanted to do on a minority community under military dictatorship would have been hard, I would think. So can you uh, say something more about what uh, techniques you used to get access, how you negotiated your way, as it were, through the streets of Yangon and also through the Sino-Burmese community? Yes. The Originally, I wanted to do a bigger comparative study that looked at the urban fabric more in depth. 
However, it was not possible to get any plans or any documents. So I thought, well, what, what am I capable of? And I speak Mandarin and Hokkien. So I thought, well, at least through that, and, and Burmese, but at least through my Chinese languages, I should be able to begin to build a relationship with those who live here. So I tried that when I was doing my year of intensive Burmese studies, and it worked. So, and I also knew that I wanted to do an ethnographic process because the macro level history tends to ignore the minorities, tends to talk about trends that really the people I talked to didn't feel as immediately. Um, politics certainly affected their lives, but they were making do in their own ways. And there were many little maneuvers that they undertook that made their lives more livable. So I tried by going to the temples, which worked out really well in one case. I also approached the native place associations and the clan halls, um, really hyping up the point that I'm Taiwanese American and speak Hokkien and have the same native place in Quanzhou in China. So many, oh, I don't know the percentage because there's no reliable census, but a, a, a significant number of the Diyot, the Sino-Burmese here, are from Quanzhou which used to be a um, like a city-level administrative zone in Fujian province. So through that, I could say, oh, you know, my ancestors also came from Anxi, uh, and I offered to help out in any way I could. Um, I offered to teach English and Mandarin. They didn't want either because they already had teachers. So I tried to volunteer in various things and and hung out basically in the in the various temples and and association halls and uh, tried to make myself useful. That's a good research strategy at that time. Uh, yeah. you, it sounds as if the uh, the project for you was in part an intellectual and in part a personal one. What were you aiming to do with the book? What were your goals? That came as I worked here. Initially, it was to investigate different ways of of being Chinese or experiencing Chinese or, or representing Chineseness. Um, and that's still in the book. But as I worked here and talked with the various people, it no longer was this search for a, um, it's not a really a truth, but something that, is much more flexible and yes, and is sustainable. People have maintained this sense of communal self despite various challenges and the needs to change it. And I, I felt like that matched my own observations as a Taiwanese American who grew up in Los Angeles, that there are things we hang on to or rediscover and decide to maintain as a tradition. And that helps to shape our, our worlds in a way that is uh, reasonable or comprehensible for, for each of us. Um, and also, I found that everybody I talked to, the Sino-Burmese, the Burmese, even some, the Muslim Burmese, I had a, my landlord is a Muslim Burmese man, everybody asked me to tell the world about them. And it was so consistent that I had to pay attention. I thought, wow, you know, this this is something important to people. So I wanted to 
to speak in a way that is uh, sensitive and empathetic because I'm, I'm talking about a group of people who live here. I'm not talking about a, a political body or governance. This is everyday people whose lives are, are in a way, um, a little precarious. You refer to your research mode as um, a spatial ethnography. And I'm wondering on the basis of what you've just said, how you're conceptualizing space. Is it um, really primarily concerned with that group of people that were the subjects of the research or does it also speak to your architectural training or some combination of both? Uh, My entry point tends to be the the street corners, the streets, anything in between buildings. I like watching what's happening and trying to understand through both visual cues and listening and smells and anything, anything in the built environment that can tell me a little bit about what's happening in that moment and hopefully then trace that moment back through archival research or, or oral history towards what was there before and why the present is the way it is. So I tend to walk around. I tend to take a lot of pictures. Um, I tried recording sounds to try <laughs> and figure out what was happening. So the original project, again, was to be bigger, was to really look at all of Yangon, but that was not possible. So um, I look at, for a, a concrete example, I look at it at a street corner and see, well, who's there? Is there anybody selling anything? Why do they sell what they sell? Who tends to hang out there? And street corners tend to have this sort of viscosity. They they pull people in and people, you know, chat or drink cold drinks or drink the paye. Um, so that's how I always start. And then by hanging out, generally, I start talking to people and they talk with me and I follow where they lead me, uh, either to their homes or to a temple or to a Chinese New Year banquet. Um, so the spatial ethnography is the interaction between the physical realm of space or place and the social interactions. Um, yeah. Does that <laughs> make sense? I think it brings us to another aspect of the work that I'd really like to ask you about because you're talking about between being between physical uh, spaces and social interactions, being in between buildings. You also talk about the Sino-Burmese in Rangoon as themselves being a people who live in between, being in a condition of in-betweenness. I'd really be interested to hear from you what that notion of in-betweenness for this community means for you. And perhaps one way to do it is with reference to a religious event in the year 2000 that you say encapsulates this condition, which you describe actually in the concluding chapter of the book. Yes. Um, So the in-between, I I should say to finish up a little bit about the spatial ethnography Because my training is in architecture, we tended to look at the monuments, the buildings, and I found that that didn't say enough about the life of the building or the life of the street. But the problem with looking at the in-between is it's it's hard to track down. It's almost impossible to quantify. So I'm very much a qualitative researcher. 
And then in looking at how the Sino-Burmese live here, there were so many things that were unclear. You know, they would say, we do this, but then we also do this other thing. And if I were being purely rational, they would be opposites. They, they would contrast each other so much that I couldn't reconcile the various things they were telling me. So when the Hungry Ghost Festival came up in 2007, they were kind enough to tell me, okay, you know, this is a big thing. We always do this here. And I was thankful to be invited because it's a very important um, holiday or, 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 or kind of like a, a marking of annual passage amongst the Hokkien who come from southern Fujian. So we were all, I was getting excited. I thought, great, I can, I can observe this thing. Then there was this strangeness in the air. And they said, well, you know, there might be some problems. The gases, gas prices have gone up. There's some tension. We don't know if we should hold this festival because people might be upset with us for having such a big event when some people have no oil, no rice, can't get into town to do their jobs. So we don't want to look like we don't care or that we're insensitive. But also, it's very important to placate the ghosts, because if you don't do that, the ghosts could be angry with you, and they could make your next year very, very difficult. So on the day of the festival, I show up around 8 a.m., and everything's all set up. It's, it's a very elaborate ritual, and they, you burn incense. There's a giant paper effigy of Dashie. Uh, then the organizers were kind of loafing around. They didn't know what to do. And I was like, well, what are we doing? They're like, well, just, just wait here. I thought, all right. Well, when are we going to you know, do the specific steps? I didn't know the specific steps. Indeed, the organizing clan, each year, a single clan takes care of the Hungry Ghost Festival. That year, it was the Zheng clan. So the Zheng clan elder looked very confused, but he kept looking to the head monk, who was a Mahayana monk, and the ritual um, coordinator. And we all just sat around confused until about noon or one o'clock. And they said, okay, everything's okay. We can go ahead with this ritual, but we'll burn the effigies before nightfall so that it's not too obvious and people won't notice as much. So then there was this, um, you had to walk around the temple and do these various, uh, burn the incense and say things. I didn't really understand. Then we all left and we came back and the main effigy was burnt around five o'clock in the afternoon and the fire department was there and all of the embers were put out before nightfall. And that was their way to ensure that both the ghosts were placated and the people in Yangon who might pass by on Strand, which is a major street, or anybody nearby would not notice that something was happening because they didn't want to draw attention. So, so, th mm. so this is, uh, in a sense, what you're talking about when you say that the community tries to be local enough, but also Chinese enough simultaneously. Is that um, a correct interpretation of what you've just said about that event? That on the one hand, there are these uh, local sensitivities um, being accustomed to the political and economic and social conditions around them, but at the same time, a concern to placate the hungry ghosts. 
Yes, yeah. And for me, symbolically, it, I read it as not only a, a local um, way of living that is aware of the context, but also sort of the, the pressure or the responsibility of the Chinese heritage that in order to somehow still be Chinese and yet be Burmese, there are these responsibilities that you have to fulfill. And one of them is Hungry Ghost Day. Another one is sweeping tombs in April. Um, and I, for me, it also ties to what this thing of China might be for the local Sino-Burmese. It generally is not the nation state, but the nation state through various forms, through cultural practices, through linkages that connect this Hungry Ghost Festival throughout the uh, South Seas, it's called, Southeast Asia, they, it, it comes back. So it's a constant negotiation, and there isn't always, actually, I would argue that there isn't a right or wrong. It's always more right or more wrong, and you try to do your best in the middle there. Well, let's see if we can also ourselves come back to that thing of China at some point uh, later in the discussion. But before we do that, Maybe it would be useful if you could paint a little bit more of the background picture for us. Uh, who are the Sino-Burmese in Rangoon or Yangon? Uh, where did they come from? How did they get there? So as far as I've been able to sort out based on the sources, the earliest came via the Maritime Road, in about the late 1700s, 1800s, early 1800s, it's unclear. They came, they say, so um, there's one Sino-Burmese scholar who unfortunately passed away, but he was a historian who taught at Rangoon University. And Ui Sain has written many pieces in Chinese. And he says that they came first as carpenters and shipbuilders. So these were the Cantonese who came via the Strait Settlements came to Yangon and were here building their ships. Then later on, Hokkien came also through the Strait Settlements, and that's more like the late 1800s. And they came as the merchants. After that, it's less clear because Louis Seng doesn't talk about it as much. But luckily, there's a scholar named Li Yi who's just published a book about the colonial era history of the Chinese. So we should gain some more clarity through her book. But some, the, there was travel, there was very difficult times in China. So there's a lot of people leaving Canton and Fujian through, going throughout the Strait Settlements. It's unclear during World War II and World War I what happened, but they, came, they did. Uh, they came in war, around the time of World War I. Then in the Japanese occupation, many, many left. Again, I did not get numbers. You know, lots left. People say Chinatown at that time was empty. But soon after World War II, they came back. Also, at that time in China, there was basically civil war. It was the KMT fighting the communists. And in the Canton and Fujian areas, it was desperate. I've interviewed people in Quanzhou, and all of the men in the families were taken away to serve as soldiers. So people run were running away, and many came here. So in the Mid to late 40s to early 50s, there were Chinese coming or Hokkien and Cantonese coming into Yangon as well. So that's that's in terms of their travel to this location. 
Oh, but I should also note that in the north, there have been so-called Yunnanis, and this is a very problematic term, but they've been going back and forth across the, the current nation-state boundary for centuries. So that is not in my book, but something that we need to look at um, as more of us look at the, the so-called Chinese in Myanmar. Uh, although it's not in the book, as you've mentioned, and I'm sure people are going to be wondering what's problematic about the term Yunnanese for that population. So could you just briefly explain it? Yeah, so as far as the current state of research indicates to us, and my brief fieldwork in Mandalay and Lasho tells me, because there are so many ethnic minority groups in that Sino-Myanmar border region, and really that, that includes Laos and Thailand, it's unclear who the various peoples are. There have been Yunnanese traders and um, Banthay traders. Banthay are the Muslim Chinese. The Banthay probably came in the Ming Dynasty, and they've come as seasonal migrants or some have settled, and they have built, like the earliest temple is in the north, not in the south, earliest Chinese temple. So this term is problematic because in the post-88 Myanmar, the question of of Dainda, of of ethnic nationalities and their belonging or their place in the nation state is problematic. So based on the work of Wu um, Aung, I'm going to get his name wrong. Uh, oh, goodness. He wrote a book called In the Name of Baopo. And in that book, he, he's a political scientist. So he does Ma-a-myo. a good job. I uh, Thank you. Yes. Ma-a-myo. He does a good job of talking about how when the ceasefire agreements were signed, many ethnic minorities in the border region who could be seen as Chinese, came down to Mandalay, came to Lash, went to Lasha, then down to Mandalay. So the current news reporting or brief little writing um, does not take care of the intricacies and the complexity of movement and whether these people are actually, do they actually identify as Han Chinese? The Yunnanese would be Han Chinese or are they Aka or Lisu? or Kachin, or, you know, there's so many different um, affinities or senses of belonging that doesn't get to be talked about right now. So it needs a lot more research. Let's come back to the Sino-Burmese in in Yangon and stick with them for the remainder of our time. You mentioned 88 already, which is an event which doesn't just relate to Yangon or a year with important events in it that transcend Yangon but have uh, important consequences for the Chinese population that are your uh, subject matter. There are a number of other years in the book that I think maybe we can just refer to them briefly before we get into the chapters so people have some sense of um, the the period that we're covering and major events in the period covered, uh, starting perhaps with uh, 1948 and then... 62, 65, 67, uh, Jade, uh, take your pick. Uh, okay, so definitely 48, obviously, because the country became an independent country. Also, I should put in 49, when China became the People's Republic of China. That had a strong influence on the Sino-Burmese here. 62, because of nationalization, which really 
was not a um, clean process. So 62 to 65, various things that were nationalized, including businesses. Um, some Chinese schools became not Chinese schools anymore, but Burmese schools. Then in 1967, there were anti-Chinese riots, not only in Yangon, but throughout the country. Um, more research is necessary to figure out exactly where and how many people. But in Yangon, it was a very, uh, it was a breaking point for many of the Sino-Burmese. Then in the late 80s, when trade opened up, that was very important because initially anybody who did business did it in the black market. Suddenly trade with China was legal. So that enabled many of the merchants here to expand their businesses. 88, because of the people's uprising and then the martial law, which again, um, not clamped down on the entire country, but when in the late 80s, people started to experiment expressing their Chinese traditions out in public after 88, it went back indoors. Then in 2007, which we talked about already in the Hungry, Goat Fest, Hungry Ghost Festival, that was a, another reminder to the Sino-Burmese that things are not very predictable. Um, and then more recently to, to our current time, 2011, has changed everything. Um, so those are the key, key years. Great. Well, We'll come to 2011 towards the end of the discussion as well. But before that, let's work our way through these uh, fabulous chapters in the book. I, they work across uh, the spaces and the people who occupy them in uh, a number of dimensions. There are um, associational features, so the clan associations and related institutions, there's a chapter on religious institutions, another on schooling and educational institutions, another on commercial places. Chapter one on hybrid spaces is particularly interesting, I think, for me at least, because of your discussion of all of the associational holes that we see on the streets of downtown Yangon, which are also very nicely illustrated in the chapter Please briefly sketch the different types of holes and uh, how they're used. Uh, so it, for the Sino-Burmese here, really, I think this is applicable for any Chinese population throughout Southeast Asia and even into the U.S. The clan halls were established quite early. So as soon as a group of people came here and made enough money to feel like they needed to establish themselves as a community, they tended to build something. But because there were so few Hokkien and Cantonese in Yangon, you couldn't uh, be very strict about who belongs to your clan. So, for example, my main name is Lin. So anybody who was a Lin at that time, and a man, not a woman, would be like, okay, we're all one clan and we have this building. Then they would, every now and then there, there would be this effort to look back through either family records or historical records to claim the, the blood ties, um, but that's debatable. So there are many clan halls in Yangon. Uh, the, in the Hokkien, on the Hokkien side of it, there are 24 recognized clan halls and all 24 of them uh, serve as the, the what, administrative body or the executive body for the main Hokkien temple, which is on Strand Road. Um, but the thing about 
the clan halls is just as in Singapore and Malaysia and elsewhere, they're, they've been on the decline for decades. So people don't tend to go anymore. And there's generally one old man sitting there, you know, sweeping and, and burning the incense every day, but he doesn't really say much and people don't really know the history of the various clans. So, so yeah. it's your discussion of the halls then, really, a discussion that's more historically situated for that reason. You, you describe your spatial ethnography as being concerned with place and how people use place, how they occupy it. But you're saying that these halls are, are characterized by an absence of occupants. Yes, yeah. That chapter, I wanted, I decided to have three types of places. So they're the colonial places, the, the Chinese places, and then the hybrid places. And my argument in that chapter is that the colonial era places like Qingchong Palace, which is on Kabai Pia Road, um, everybody sees it when you drive by it. That one is like a relic, like a museum piece, because it's of a, a bygone era and people don't have connections to it anymore. Similarly, the clan halls are purely Chinese spaces. And because they haven't changed and adapted to the political, economic, economic and social circumstances, they're left empty. They're still there. They're very obvious in Chinatown, but they're shells. Whereas now there are these hybrid Chinese Burmese places. And for me, the best example is the barbecue street. Everybody knows it as a Chinatown phenomenon. They go to have barbecue and drink beer, but it's still Chinese somehow. And then until very recently, Mahabandula had a night market every night that's been moved to Strand. That was also something everybody knew about. And it, it was an everyday cheap place to eat. You know you could get Chinese food. You, you can also get Shan food. You can get any, you know, fried fritters. But it's Chinese and local. And these are the vibrant places that are still sustaining city life. So that was the idea for that chapter, these three types of spaces. And in contrast to the halls, but more like the market life, you in the second chapter concentrate on a temple which has up until the present uh, a vibrant life, which is also uh, depicted in the images that accompany that chapter. What's that temple and why did you choose to concentrate on it? Yeah, so here is an example of a, a place that even though it's more obviously Chinese, is still vibrant and still people still worship there on a daily basis. Um, partly because when the temple was established, it was not long, only a religious center, it was a communal center. It was where the new migrants came, could get a bite to eat, could find a job. If they got sick, there was a free clinic. If they died, this is where people took their bodies to make sure they were buried properly. So it has served a social or communal and religious role in its entire history. So today it's still a very, it, um, in Mandarin you say xiangwang, which is like the inc there's a lot of incense because a lot of people worship there. And it is where the elderly, so, so there are elderly Sino-Burmese today who have no, no kin, no family to take care of them. Many of them look like they're illiterate. So every, every two months, they can go to the temple and get their basic necessities. 
um, and get a little bit of money to help sustain them. So the Hokkien Guanyin Temple is vibrant and important because it's a current community center that serves anybody who self-identifies as Hokkien Chinese. And it contrasts with another temple you mentioned in the chapter that has fallen into relative decline. Yeah, the Cantonese Guanyin Temple is the one that most Yangon, most of the residents in Yangon know better. It's at the corner of Lhasa and um, Mahabandula. And it's bigger, it's shinier. There's been money put into the upkeep, but the temple, up, up until recently, I would say, is empty if you go in. I've checked throughout the day, early morning, mid-afternoon, you know, late afternoon, and I didn't see people in there. So when I asked about it, the Hokkien Chinese perspective was, well, you know, a lot of them left after nationalization in the 60s, and they didn't come back. So they no longer have the community to worship at this temple. Um, there are other geomantic interpretations. They say that the Hokkien Guanyin Temple is at a better location because it's right by the river, whereas the Cantonese one is inland, so it's not as good. However, um, when I continue with this research, I'll have to revise that part because today the Cantonese temple is coming back to life. Uh, it's, and it's starting, so I'm, I'm observing it. Don't know what's going to happen, but something's changing there. Uh, with regards to the, the Hokkien temple and perhaps the Cantonese one in, in the future, you talk about it as a, a physical representation of a distant homeland that is very much more than an imagined past. And you make that statement also describing it as a nested place. What do you mean by mm. that? Yes. So I'm really drawn to the idea of place. And although it's difficult in scholarship to distinguish when place begins and when it stops versus space, I'm, I like the use of place is better when, I, when I'm trying to think through how a community lives because it's a center of meaning that is located. However, in that location, it's not bound or fixed. There is flexibility. There is still mobility, even though there's kind of like a center of gravity that keeps it more, um, more rooted, but not absolutely rooted. So here you can see why it's so slippery. And I also use plays um, from, I draw from people like Jeff Malpass, and he was the one who came up with this term, nested place, because the Hokkien Guanyin Temple, in terms of physical reality, is the temple and the people who go there today and worship. But in the act of worship, they're drawing upon memories and significance that come from Quanzhou. And that connection is what enables the Hokkien Guanyin Temple to be meaningful. If you cut off that connection, it is no longer, no longer um, spiritually vibrant. So what's key to me in talking about settled migrant populations is that you can become a people of that place, of Yangon, and yet st still feel a sense of kinship or um, love, I guess. That's not a very academic word, but there's this feeling for Chenzhou that is drawn 
to reinstill uh, life into the current temple on Strand Road. And that, that can be argued for the, the clan associations in the past, but not really in the present. Does this point go to, uh, in the third chapter, your discussion of Chineseness? What do you mean by Chineseness mm. anyway? Yes, thank you. Yeah. So whereas the temple is sort of the everyday, unselfconscious practice of being Hokkien and somehow then being Chinese, the Chinese schools resulted as an almost an exclusively political exercise. The schools in the post-1911 period were built to disseminate a particular understanding of what it means to be Chinese, and that Chinese was a national Chinese, not a local Hokkien Chinese or a Cantonese Chinese, but what the the ruling government at that time, and at that time there were two, right? They were fighting the communists and the nationalists. So they each had their own ideology, and they were disseminating that through the schools. So that was a construction of Chineseness that's different from the practiced, unselfconscious mode of living. Um, yeah. So you, you're alluding to this a competition of uh, Chineseness over Chinese identity that was associated with the ideological split between the communities. Uh, was that split something that was restricted to uh, Chinese language schooling, or did it go broader than that? And did it have larger implications for the community that, say, there were people who had um, affiliations with the nationalists and some with the communists? Yeah. The so the at that time, so from about 1911, and I, I'll say roughly until the mid 1960s. The those who self-identified as Chinese were still living in a, a smaller sphere amongst other Hokkien and Cantonese. So the split at that time was Hokkien versus Cantonese and nationalists versus communists. And the KMT, the nationalist government, and the communists tended to target particular groups. So the Hokkien became, well, it's actually, it's very messy. <laughs> um, the, the, the two schools that I talk about in the book, there's one that's the Huazhong, which is in Jimindang, that started out as more nationalist, but then the communists took over, so it became more communist. And then there was Nanzhong, another high school that was established as a communist high school and stayed a communist high school. And the students in those schools, were, their curriculum was a long, were, were strongly um, ideological and ended up seeing the other camp as enemies. That did blow up in 1967 because the, the students who were reading the Little Red Book and were taught by teachers from China who were explicitly disseminating communist ideology decided that they had to stand up for red China. Um, the the uh, 67 anti-Chinese riots also require more research, but as far as we know, the students were too vocal and the government came in and said, look, 
You know, you can't show Mao. You can't wear a little button with Mao's face on it. Only Aung San's face can be displayed in schools. Um, the, the sources that I found said then teachers got involved and people who were probably sent by the government um, began beating people who look Chinese. But I want to keep that. that there's not much more research needs to be involved to, to figure out what exactly happened. So what happened to Chinese language instruction and indeed the use of Chinese language in Rangoon after 67? It stopped. It, basically, the schools were closed in 65. And then some teachers decided that they had to continue teaching Chinese and opened up tutorials. So they students could go to the homes of the teachers or borrow a clan hall space and continue to learn Chinese. But after 67, it stopped. In Yangon, there was no Chinese language education unless you did it in your own home as a parent. And most of the elderly Chinese here, Sino-Burmese, I should say, here say that they lost Chineseness for a few decades, that they lost a generation because none of the people who are now in their 30s and 40s could, can speak Mandarin. But one of the interesting uh, stories that you tell in this chapter that would not have occurred to me is how uh, these schools had a kind, even though they were closed, they had a kind of an afterlife through the alumni organizations which spread around the world. What a remark yes. briefly on on these uh, communities of alumni that, that come back to visit the sites of their schools. Yes. Yeah, so both the Huazhong and Nanjong students felt, uh, well, they were partially residential high school, so that probably contributed to it, that the kids lived there. But they have a very strong sense of community, and that schooling formed their sense of Chineseness. Key in that Chinese is being able to speak Mandarin and read Chinese language. So after the schools were closed, they, they did try to keep ma maintain Chinese language education after the not-so-clear economic liberalization in the 90s. They were able to earn money and started to try and have little schools, uh, either in the temples or in the clan associations, and they would solicit funds from like New York or L.A. or Hong Kong, where there were other alumni from these two schools. So during my fieldwork period, I saw people flying back from New York or from Hong Kong to participate in the anniversaries of the schools. You've mentioned just then uh, the, the not-so-clear economic liberalization or at least economic changes of the 90s, and that brings us into the fourth chapter with the theme of commerce. Uh, what do tiger prawns have to do with City Mart, the biggest supermarket chain in Myanmar? Yeah, so I was lucky in that I met the City Mart family by going to work out at 5 a.m. at Inya Lake. Um, and so, and they're very kind people. They have a, a group that I call the Yangon Breakfast Club. So these, uh, they're like in their 60s, so they work out in the morning and they always gather and, and eat breakfast together. So I followed them around and for some reason he started telling me the owner the the 
it's a family. So there's a man and a woman, and their daughter is the supermarket queen of Myanmar. So the <laughs> the husband told me how difficult it was to do business, and said that you know initially when the economy opened up, there was no predictable way to do business, but they'd heard. That restaurants in Hong Kong wanted fresh, live prawns, and if you can deliver them to Hong Kong when there's and they're still alive when they get there, you earn a lot of money. So Mr. Chen、uh, did that. He then set up this ad hoc business where he knew people down in the in the Irrawaddy region, got them to catch the shrimp. Put them on trucks, drive them up to Mingaladon Airport, put them in dry ice, and fly them to Hong Kong all in one day. And that kind of ad hoc, very opportunistic business enabled Mr. Chen to make significant capital. He also had some properties that he was buying and selling. So through that capital, they opened up the first City Mart, which is、uh, at Ansan Stadium. So. And one one of the points that I'm, I'm not sure if he makes it or if it's a number of your other interlocutors, but you, it comes up in this chapter it concerns how,、uh, perhaps somewhat counterintuitively, precisely because you had a military regime that was、um, a pariah, and、uh, there were、uh, a lot of difficulties, even just practical difficulties, with setting up large-scale businesses in Myanmar at that time that discouraged big investors. The、uh, local entrepreneurs found a way forward and felt that they actually got opportunities to do things that they、um, they might not have otherwise been able to do. That they would have been squeezed out by by larger and better established businesses from abroad if the economy had been liberalized very quickly. Yes. Yeah. N- almost. Actually, every single. Business family that is successful today said that they said during the Slork SPDC period they were able to make money even though they were doing small businesses. And one man had this amazing said this amazing thing that I love, which is they they pick up the leftovers, you know. So whatever the military didn't care to do, they would pick it up and do it. So it could be selling beans and pulses, trading that at a small scale. Or the prawns, or selling incense—that it was the stuff that didn't attract, you know, Total or, or any large business. So through that, they've been able to build enough capital to really do well today.、Uh, I suppose an historical point worth、uh, noting briefly as well is、uh, in the mid '60s, a、uh, large number of. People who were identified as foreigners in verdict commas were expelled from the country, and the Indian business community, especially, was targeted in those、uh, operations by the Nehwin regime. What about the, this Chinese community, the Sino-Burmese in, in Rangoon? It seems as if a lot of your interlocutors stuck it out and didn't perhaps suffer the same type of、um, egregious、uh, attacks on both their Capital and their persons that the Indian community suffered. Yeah,、um, Join Line does a really good job of looking at what happened after World War II and the absence of commercial expertise because the Indians were not either were dri- were not allowed to come back or were driven out. So the 
Chinese Sino-Burmese then had a freer playing field. They had some expertise and they were able to do business sometimes through the name of a Burman businessman, but nonetheless, they operated the businesses. So in the history of doing business here among the Sino-Burmese, it's been, it's been the in-between. They find the little cracks and they make the best of that little crack. Um, so the, it's, a, it's been a su- successful recipe for them. And I think they're, they're going to continue doing that today even. Well, the story throughout all of these chapters has been about the movement in and out of public and private space and the waxing and waning of fortunes and of opportunities seized as they presented themselves. And in in some way, the, the last chapter, chapter five, um, the um, recovery and adaptation of traditions like lion dancing after many years at the New Year festivities being kept at a very low profile is also... Uh, very much a part of that story. So tell us, when did it again become possible for lion dancers to step out into the open? And what's really the significance of uh, the Chinese New Year now being held publicly in a way that it wasn't able to be held previously? Yeah. So the just like everything else, as you said, there have been ups and downs. And in 2005, the people who live on St. Old Dance Street the upper block of St. Odin Street, decided to hold a lion dance competition. In the past, there were lion dances, but at a much smaller scale, there were little local martial arts associations, and they would send their lions out during Chinese New Year, and by going out, the, and the lion dance troupe would get red envelopes, and that's that's how you can make a little bit of money. 2005, the Sinodan Street people, and there's there's a it's a bunch of really interesting men. They call themselves a family, which I think is very significant because again, it's that intimate connections that enables an expression of who they are. So they thought, well, you know, Chinese New Year is too dead. They really wanted to liven it up. They drew upon their own experience as Sino-Burmese growing up in Yangon and remembered the lion dancing that they did. Simultaneously, because of the opening up of the economy, various people were traveling to Malaysia, Singapore, and other places to study. So they would go for their BA or to try and do a master's degree. And while there, they saw lion dancing in Malaysia and Singapore, which is a huge spectacle. And they were dancing on these posts, um, and, you know, they're fire, uh, firecrackers. So some of these people filmed the lion dance competitions, brought them back, showed them to friends, and then they were made into um, VCDs and sold out on the street. So there were two forces coming at it, the, the, the desire to recreate the liveliness of Chinese New Year and the entry of this practice of Chineseness from another over, Chinese overseas community. So they, hold the, they held this competition every year around the end of the 10 to 15 day period of Chinese New Year. Um, and lots of people joined. And the three years that I observed it specifically for my research, there was a number of different troops. It was very 
chummy. You know, all the young men hung out. They slept in a pile on the street when they got tired. Um, so that expression became about the the athleticism of the lion dance, about celebration, and was not threatening to the state in any way. So they were allowed to continue. And on this theme of, of place and identity and, and hybridity, would it be true to say that when the Sino-Burmese in Rangoon today look to a way of being Chinese, it's to their counterparts in Malaysia or Singapore rather than the, the mainland that they turn? Yeah, yeah. I, the, as China gains more influence in Southeast Asia, and we're seeing that now, there might be a shift, but I don't think so. I think at the level of of the practices of tradition, of self-identification, it's the cultural practices that are finer grained and draw from places like Malaysia and Singapore because the local Sino-Burmese not only want to be Chinese, they also want to be modern. And the modern way of being Chinese is more present in their minds in Singapore and Malaysia. China is an economic force. They will look to China for business opportunities, but they won't copy China to be Chinese. Why is that? What, what is it about the Malaysian or Singaporean case that is um, emblematic of a kind of modernity that these um, young men and women aspire to? Well, one, the cultural practices that we see in Yangon today were lost in China. And that might be too broad of a statement, but for the Hokkien and the Cantonese, practices like Hungry Ghost Day and Lion Dancing almost disappeared during the Cultural Revolution. So if, if they're trying to revive that practice, they could not find a source in China. Whereas in Malaysia in particular, it's been maintained and amplified. So if you want to be traditional and modern at the same time, Malaysia is a better point of reference. Also, the Sino-Burmese in Yangon cannot speak for Mandalay or, or Lasho, but in Yangon they say China has not been there for us, that they've had no Kaoshan in Mandarin. So they've been abandoned in the... The last imperial dynasty, the Qing, they were abandoned under the KMT and the communists. So today, China is very much reaching out to all Chinese overseas through various means like the Confucius classrooms or study tours to China or cultural tours to China. But the Sino-Burmese here are aware of their past and that this, this um, new initiative from China might not have much depth. So it's more, they trust the person-to-person -person connections more, and those would be towards Singapore and Malaysia. Uh, in any event, uh, Rangoon is today changing very quickly, something you've alluded to at a couple of points in the conversation already. Uh, I guess this question isn't terribly scholarly and perhaps a little unfair given that the book has just been published, but it, 
how much of the story in the book uh, do you think will hold over the next, say, five or ten years? And how much will the and in what ways will the Sino-Burmese community in Rangoon undergo change in this period of significant flux? Yeah, it's um, so one of the reasons I structured the book the way it did is because I think the various places that I list, for example, the Hokkien Guanin Temple, the Chinese schools, City Mart, and then the streets, will we'll have slightly different tra- trajectories. In terms of cultural practices like the Hokkien Guanin Temple, I think the point of reference will remain the Maritimes uh, overseas Chinese and will continue to look back towards Quanzhou and Guangzhou. For Chinese schools, it is the PRC. Um, the, the Confucius classrooms have been growing there are more and more Confucius classrooms in Myanmar. So that representation of China and what it means to be Chinese will have more influence. I do have, uh, I am tracking that a little bit and it will, it will have an impact. For commerce, at present, I would say that there are different levels of access. So we have those who could still fall in the the crony businesses category. And those people have access to the state-owned enterprises coming out of China. Even though they're not labeled as state-owned enterprises, they they are. Um, Then there's another level of more local businesses like City Mart that are quite successful, but are, are very careful about the kinds of business relationships they establish. And then the very small businesses, you know, like the neighborhood shops that sell the crackers and chips and things like that. So I don't think in the business world they will take over just yet, even with the one belt, one road on the horizon. Um, It's, you know, the investment laws are clear enough. Things are going to move forward very slowly. So I don't think the Sino-Burmese will lose out very quickly. I think they'll sustain themselves. Jade, you are in in Rangoon presently, and it sounds like there's an awful lot there for you to to work on. Uh, What's your primary interest presently, and what can we look forward to from you in the coming years? So right now, my project is a, a rather big project, but I want to look at discourses of development in urbanization. So I'm starting out in Yangon. Hopefully I'll get to look at the whole country. So this is probably five years or something. But the because of the entry of INGOs and different funding bodies, development has been a key word that is thrown about without much definition. And it's very much affecting how the built environment is changing. So I'm trying to see both at the historical level from the colonial era forward, how the committees that the British established defined urbanization and what an ideal city is. And I need to find the records from the parliamentary and socialist eras and SBDC times to see if there's a particular um, trend that has happened. In the current research, I'm following vendors around 
and trying to see, well, what do they think development should be? What would make their lives better? As a counter discourse to these macro level ideas of urbanization and modernization. So it's a, it's a messy, long project. And there you are, of course, still between, in between yourself, between vendors and archives. Uh, whatever comes out of that project, I'm sure it will be fascinating. And, um, and I certainly look forward to hearing and uh, reading more about it in the future. In any case, uh, Jade Lynn Roberts, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today about your new book, Mapping Chinese Rangoon. Thank you. And thanks for letting me ramble. <laughs> And thanks to everyone for, for listening to this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I look forward to having you join me again next month for another conversation with an author of another new book.